Don't want to embarrass my wife any. I knew when I said that she'd be like, "Well, then don't say that." And I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's an embarrassment, really, but uh, we don't like to talk about ourselves too much. But um, this month, my wife and I will celebrate our twenty-fifth wedding anniversary. Nice. And it just doesn't seem like it's been that many years uh, since we stood before our friends and. Uh, uh, and God, and committed our lives to Him and to each other. It just doesn't seem like it. Does it seem like it to you? 25 years? Of course, we were together 20... We've been together 27... Yeah, some days. just depends on the day, I guess, huh? But doesn't to me, you know? And uh, um, have you ever awakened in the, in the morning sometime and gone and looked in the, the mirror and go, whoa, what happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? I... It, Somehow it's like a time warp thing. That's happened to me on occasion. I'll go, go say, "Well, wait a minute. I was. What's happened here? Oh, yeah, that's right. I am almost fifty. I thought I was about thirty. You know. Um, but uh, you know, because of that time, I was looking back through our life together, and I also realized something else: that this month marks the twelfth year that I've been a pastor. Now, in this case. It seems just the opposite in, in many respects of my marriage in that it seems to have been so much longer than 12 years. I thought for sure, no, it's been a lot longer than that. Um, and I, I contemplated, what would be the reason for such a feeling? Why in my marriage does it just seem like it was just, you know, such a short time ago, but <laughs> in ministering and pastoring it seems like it's been longer um, I came up with several possible reasons, of course, but I think I narrowed it down to, to what I believe is that um, my expectations were that we would have been in the kingdom long before, uh, long before now, and yet we're still here. Forty said Adventists are a rough crowd. Adventists are. <laughs> Adventists are a rough crowd, but that could be. That could be. I don't know. I like. I said there are several, probably several reasons for that. There, there are. You know, you don't maybe get as much sleep as other people do, or you're you're called out. I mean, it's not like I'm a fireman or a policeman or anything like that. But there are added stresses, really, um, in situations. But there are also joyful things too. I mean, you know. But but I'm thinking that my expectations were really high. And uh, we're still here. Well, we have to live each day like it might be last Exactly. You're right. You're right. And, and I got to thinking about why, why are we still here? Why is it that we're still here? And I know that there are really a number of good answers to that question. But I, through my years and experience, um, I've kind of come to the conclusion that the question, the answer to that question, why we're still here, is that we lack the faith necessary to hasten the Lord's return. That's kind of where I've kind of settled on. We lack the faith necessary to hasten His return. The last time we were together, we were looking at Luke 18, not at outdoor church, but uh, uh, the time before that. And there's an interesting statement by our Lord in that chapter that really has stuck with me since, that, since we read it. It's, it has stuck with me. And, and I've, of course, I've read it several times before, but for some reason, a few weeks ago when I read it, it really has kind of, kind of stayed in my mind. Uh, Luke chapter 18. And I want to read verses 7 and 8, really. And... Uh, you know, I was talking about avenge me, my my adversary. If you remember a few weeks ago, uh, about the uh, uh, the widow and the judge, and and I used this. Uh, it says, "And shall not God avenge His own elect, right? Which cry day and night unto Him, though He bear long with them? I tell you, and this is, of course is the Lord speaking. I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Now that's nice, isn't it?" But this next part's what really has stuck with me. It says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? 
shall he find faith on the earth. And that's been in the back of my mind for several weeks. I mean, since that time. And if you've been paying attention, I hope that you have, um, to the messages the last few months, and you might have noticed that I've been, actually I've been speaking often about faith and belief. Has anybody noticed? You can find it in virtually any message you give because the, the, the scriptures are, that's, that's the basic principle to all of them is faith and, and belief. But you, you see, beloved, uh, as I've ministered, and again, remember, I was thinking back to 12 years, you know, and as I've ministered uh, uh, for people and spent time through the years in meetings uh, with other churches and with other ministry leaders trying to organize, you know, the movement and to, to move forward as united people, I've realized that we really know a lot about doctrines and principles. I mean a lot. It's like we've, we've got the... De- In fact, we think we know so much about such things that there are divisions over them all the time because we think we know so much about the principles and the doctrines and, and, and stuff. And there, there are divisions over this little part of this you know, principle or that one. And what we as a people, are, in my mind now, this is what I've kind of come to conclude... What we as a people seem to have lost in the daily work of the gospel is faith and love. Without faith in God, we cannot love each other. I mean, isn't it, isn't it the love of God in Christ that first grabbed our hearts and, and touched us with hope that if we had faith in Him, we could move mountains and eventually live with Jesus for all eternity. Isn't that what grabbed us? I believe it. Yeah. Have you, if you hadn't had that experience, I mean, wouldn't you like to have that experience? And if you've lost that experience, wouldn't you like to have it back? Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, doctrines and, and such, that's all important. Um, but sometimes we get we get away from the fundamental, <laughs> you know. And beloved, I think the the most terrible thing that could happen to us is if the blood of Christ was poured out in vain for His people, for each of us. It it doesn't need to happen. But for the majority of people in this world, the cross will be in vain. That's a sad fact. So I look into the mirror of my soul and I I ask myself, when Jesus returns, will He find faith in me? And that's what's been with me for the last few weeks. Will He find faith in me? And I have to ask, what about you? Do you think about that? When Jesus returns, will He find faith in you? You know, the gospel is really very simple. And, and again, don't, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. Our God is a God of law and order. He is a God of law and order. It's very important to know it. It's very important to know the, the law. You, you have to know the law in order to know what the Lord expects and to be obedient. And to, know what you're to know what you're saved from, exactly. It's that mirror that shows us that we need a Savior. <laughs> you know? But the heart of the gospel is much simpler than we seem to think, and it too often gets pushed out of the way for the complexities, I would say, of doctrine and, and organizational principles and, and you know this thing and that thing. The gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. And I actually thank God for that. Because uh, that means I can understand it. <laughs> Did you know that the Apostle John reduces the teaching of the Gospel really to one Greek word? He really does. He uses the Greek word pistos. Pistos. Have you ever heard of it? I have, but I can't it. It's most commonly translated as faith. But also in the Gospel of John, it's often translated, same word, but they translated it in his Gospel a number of times as Believe. 
Now, it's not a mental assent. The Greek really has a lot to it. Faith, faith, belief, it means a commitment, a trust. You're committing to trust, believe, see, and making a commitment. Hebrews chapter 11, most people are very familiar with that. It's often referred to as the faith chapter. No one's going to the kingdom of heaven without faith. I hope we understand that. You know, uh, Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. It's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. That's verse 6. Hebrews 11 verse 6. It is impossible to please God without faith. And nobody's going to the kingdom of God without faith. If you have faith, oh, friends, if you have faith, wonderful things can happen to you. Things that most people cannot even believe. God, you know, when you come to know Christ and, and, and you give yourself to Him, you believe that God has worked a miracle in your life. And people can see you and they see that you're a changed person and they can tend to believe, you know, those who are unbelievers, they can tend to believe that something, a miracle has happened or something, because you're not the same person you were. But God also can work miracles in your life past that. Doesn't He do that? God is the miracle worker, isn't He? I believe that God has worked miracles in each of our lives that we just are unaware of right now. And one day we'll know. God destroyed a kidney stone I had just like that because I asked <laughs> I mean for a few seconds I was like really you know you get that split second of did that just happen I can't believe that but then you think well don't say you can't believe it <laughs> you know it might come back I don't know you know faith it's simple Hebrews 11 and verse 33. It talks about people in the Old Testament who did incredible things. And remember, chapter 11 is about faith, right? They did incredible things by faith in God. That means they trusted God and they committed themselves to God. They believed God's promises. In verse 33 it says, "...who through faith subdued kingdoms." wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. I kind of want to break this up a little bit. Do you know anybody in the Old Testament who through faith subdued a whole kingdom? There are several examples, but what about Jonathan and his armor bearer? You remember that? Two people subdued a whole, the whole kingdom of the Philistines. That's 1 Samuel 14 if you want to go look that up. Two people. <laughs> Hebrews 11.33, it said, they wrought righteousness and they obtained promises. You know, the Bible, it's a book of promises. From the beginning to the very end. Promises. He, you know, Genesis 3.15, isn't that the greatest promise that virtually you can find in the Bible? Promise of a coming Savior. But the promises don't do any good unless you believe them. When people who were blind, maimed, lame, uh, or diseased came to Jesus to, to be healed, very often Jesus would say, according to your faith, be it unto you. Isn't that right? Amen. The Bible promises are not going to do any good without faith. But if you have faith, it's different. You're going to receive the promise. In fact, it is inherent in the promise already. <laughs> if you don't have faith, you'll not receive the promise. That's why the Bible is a dead book to so many people. They don't have faith, so they don't receive anything. They, they don't think that God is real or that religion is real. There are a lot of scoffers in the world today, aren't there? 
these people say, well, that's not real. It's a fluke. It's something, you know, something happened. I read a, uh, about a person who had, a, I think it was a, a gallbladder stone. And the doctor was wanting to do surgery, remove the gallbladder, and, and the Lord has laid out natural remedies. And, and uh, um, this lady was treated with lemon juice and olive oil. Went back to the doctor, and the doctor was doing the old sonogram, or whatever it was, you know, and, and the testimony is he took it and started banging on it and said, this thing must not be working because, you know, you had a gallbladder stone, now it's gone. <laughs> right? Something else happened. It wasn't God who did that. It wasn't principles God laid out. It wasn't promises He gave. Oh, this stupid instrument was messed up. People scoff. Of all the people in the world, I, to me, I would think physicians would be the, the ones most closest to see that God is real. But many times, they, they have nothing to do with God. Verse 33 continued, said, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Do you know any place in the Old Testament where because of faith, the mouths of lions were stopped? <laughs> That's a big one, isn't it? Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. And by faith, the mouths of those lions were stopped. More examples of things that can happen if you have faith are given in verse 34. Quenched the violence of fire escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Did anyone in the Old Testament escape being burned to death because they had faith? The, the three Hebrew worthies, isn't that true? They certainly did. There are many, many stories also in the Old Testament about people who by faith escaped the edge of the sword. Just one would be... Uh, huh? Well, yeah, David. Ehud, he was the second judge. He did. What about Jacob? He wrestled with God, didn't he? He saw his brother was coming to kill him. Then it says there in verse 34, it says, Out of weakness we're made strong. Are you afraid? Because maybe you're afraid because you know you're weak. You're weak in certain areas. We all are, aren't we? Are we afraid? Did you know that the more you are aware of your weakness, the stronger you can become through God? People who are weak, who realize they are weak, will become strong when they look to the Lord. He takes that weakness and He makes you strong. The Lord told Paul, My strength is made perfect in weakness. Isn't that interesting? Because then... We can't take the glory, can we? It's God who's done it. When you choose to put your trust in the Lord, He changes your weaknesses into strengths. The people of the world find that hard to believe. They can't understand it. But that's what the Bible teaches, and it is the Christian experience, actually. Back to Hebrews 11.34, it says, "...they waxed valiant in fight." Well, there are many stories in the Bible about that. Cindy brought up David. He escaped the edge of the sword, but he also waxed valiant in fight, didn't he? Remember the story of King Saul? He told David, he said, if you kill a hundred Philistines, I'll give you my daughter as your wife. And David said, okay. He goes out and he kills two hundred. <laughs> waxed valiant in fight. There's also many stories in the Bible of people who turned to flight the armies of the aliens. When David met Goliath, he turned the entire army of the Philistines to flight. When he lifted up Goliath's own sword and chopped off his head, the Philistines kind of did one of those and ran. And of course, Israel followed after him. And they, they destroyed the Philistines. But I want to tell you, friends, if you have faith, the day is coming when all the hosts of darkness are going to be running from you. No matter how many there are. That's what your faith is going to produce. In this world, people become afraid. 
They say the forces against them are too many. But if you have faith, that doesn't matter. In fact, if you have faith, the less numbers you have and the greater number of enemies you have, have you ever thought about this, the bigger the victory is going to be. Because God never loses. (laughs) God has never lost a battle. Essentially, He hasn't, has He? Jesus is not only a Savior, He's a general who has never lost a battle. If you have faith in Him, you're on the winning side and you can know that right now. The trouble is, God cannot do very much for His children who lack in faith. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the story of of, uh, being rejected in Nazareth. You're familiar with that? Matthew 13, he talks about that. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 58. Jesus had gone around. Everywhere he went, virtually crowds followed him, but he comes to Nazareth, and there's not too many crowds. And there's not very many miracles. What do you think that is? Well, Jesus said that. Yeah, prophet's not received in his own country. Tends to be that way, doesn't it? Because they, they like know you. At least they think they know you. You know, And they'll scoff at any kind of change. Well, yeah, we know who you really are. Right? And notice what he says in verse 58. He says, it says, And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Could they have seen wonderful things happen? Yep. They could have, but they didn't have enough faith. So they didn't see much. And that's the way a lot of people's religious experience is. They say, well, I don't see God doing very much in my life, and they don't. Would they with that kind of an attitude? (laughs) God's not doing much in their life because they don't have much faith. They don't trust Him enough. Now, again, faith isn't complicated. Faith just trusts that if God says something, and if you believe it and follow the conditions, it'll happen. That's what faith is. You don't need to know how you're going to receive it. God has a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing. When people put their trust in the Word and start fulfilling the conditions, when we we begin to obey and we trust God, God starts working miracles in our lives. In fact, like I said before, I think He works miracles in our lives that we aren't aware of. I want to speak about one of the great stories in Scripture about a man called Caleb who had this simple kind of faith that... Jesus will find on the earth when He returns. The question really for us is, will we be like Caleb? That's going to be a question. He was one of the twelve who were sent from the leaders of the tribes of the children of Israel, you remember, to search out the the land of Canaan. They came back, it says, with a, a bunch of grapes so big that it took two men to carry it. One cluster of grapes took two men to carry. (laughs) I'd like to have a garden like that. What do you think? It was a a wonderful place, Canaan was. In ancient times, it must have been one of the most fertile of all the countries in the world. It had a subtropical climate. You could grow probably most anything there. The climate was so healthy that the descendants in that land had not degenerated as much as the rest of the people around the world. The men of Canaan, they were considered giants, probably 10, 12 feet tall, I bet. To the rest of the people, I mean, that's huge. That's taller than my ceilings in here. The Israelite men saw these giants in Canaan and they were afraid because... Well, they didn't have faith, did they? In Numbers chapter 13, 
In verse 33, he says, and, and there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. So there's, there's not just, you know, you got somebody who's six foot eight, you know, maybe a head above everybody else. They're saying we look like grasshoppers compared to these these people. Very big distinction. The men were saying that the cities were strong as well and they were fortified and there were, were giants, of course. In uh, Numbers 13.30, says, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, you imagine the other ten... You see, you had Joshua and Caleb that had the same report. We can take it. You imagine the other ten looking at these guys saying, you are out of your minds. <laughs> Don't you imagine? You guys are crazy. Caleb says, we are well able to overcome it. Let's go up at once and possess it. Now, how did he know that? I mean, nobody else knew it. Well, other than Joshua. Had he seen the giants? Yeah. He knew God was there. Well, God had said, didn't He? He'd seen all these things. He'd seen everything the other ten had seen. But something was different. Why did He bring back such a different report? Because He had faith in God. He knew what everybody should have known. God had promised them this land. God had promised them that land. He made that promise to Abraham. And He renewed it to Isaac. He renewed it to Jacob. He'd worked miracles through Moses to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Have you ever wondered about that? Here are few million people and they they are witnesses to all these miracles of God and yet we can't go in there and take his land. You wondered that? Sometimes I'm like, wow. We don't see such things today, do we? God delivered them. They'd seen God desolate Egypt. They'd seen Him dry up the Red Sea. Gee, that's not something that happens, you know, every ten years or through all those miracles, through the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, how could they ever think that God would now leave them? Bring them to the land of Canaan. Tell them to possess the land, but I'm going to stay back here while you go in. I don't know. But I've thought about it. I mean, have you ever heard someone say, I've committed too many sins and I'm not sure whether I can be saved or not? My little brother was that way. I'm just too bad. God can't save me. I think that was exactly the situation with the ten spies. Bible says in Philippians 1.6, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Has God done anything good in your life? <laughs> if God has done some good things in your life, then have faith that the one who has begun a good work in your life is going to finish it. Do you believe that? Amen. Caleb knew that God would not work all those miracles to bring the people out of the land of Egypt and then just leave them in the wilderness. He knew that God was going to give them that land. He had promised. Since he knew that, he said, let's go take it. Now this story is a type of the last days, isn't it? This earthly Canaan was an earthly type called the promised land. Has God promised us some land? Yes. 
as the Bible says, that the righteous, the meek, are going to inherit the earth. The whole thing. <laughs> Not just the little two acres I have here. We're going to inherit the earth. Caleb said, let's go take it. The Lord has promised it to us. But the other said, no, we're not ready. We cannot make it. We're too weak. They're stronger than they are. Do you see how big they were? Are you out of your mind? But remember, if you have faith, you're in the service of a general who has never lost a battle. Never. The fewer your numbers are and the bigger the hosts of the enemy are, the bigger and the more dramatic the victory is going to be. You can see that throughout all the Old Testament. Time and time again. Because it's God who gets the glory. Now let me also state the negative part of it. You cannot be a part of the victory or even part of the battle, really, unless you have faith. Unless you trust in God. Romans 10.17, that's pretty familiar, isn't it? So then faith cometh by what? Hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. In other words, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Faith, the Bible says, comes by hearing. And we're talking about a genuine faith here. Genuine faith is not a a blind confidence to be exercised in the absence of evidence. You know, it's not a blind faith. Faith is our conviction about things that that we cannot see. Remember Hebrews 11.1? 1? And this conviction, though, is founded upon knowledge. A knowledge based upon the Word of God. The message really about Christ. That's what it's based upon. The Gospel. So the question really is, as I've, I've asked sometimes before, do you believe? Do you have faith that Jesus is the Son of God and died for your sins? Are you studying your Bible every day so your faith can grow? Your trust, belief in Him. Do you have more faith now than when you did last year? We can look back in our life and see things. Is your faith growing? Or are you becoming, or are you, one of the ten spies who said, life's so terrible, I just can't make it. We can't do it. Caleb said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. To overcome it. Numbers 14 tells us what the people decided to do. They decided to accept the report of the majority and to reject the report of the minority. And this is just one of the times in the Scriptures where you find that the majority is not always right. In fact, in spiritual things, even in the church of God, the majority has been wrong more often than they've been right. Which is a sad thing to contemplate. It tells you the real condition of the church, doesn't it? There are also tares that an enemy has sown. But because they accepted the report of the majority instead of the report of the minority, the children of Israel had to stay in the wilderness for how long? Another 40 years. We're familiar. We study prophecy. You're familiar with Numbers 14.34. After the number of the days in which ye searched the land, even 40 days, each day for a year shall ye bear your iniquities, even 40 years, and ye shall know my breach of promise, that you have not believe my promise to deliver this land to you. That was a terrible disappointment. Can you imagine? In fact, if you read on, they were so disappointed that when God told them that they could not go into the promised land, what'd they do? Well, they decided they were going to go in anyway. So, they didn't obey God in going in when He said, and they didn't obey God when He said, you're not going in. They said, oh yeah, we'll go in. Moses told them not to do it, but they tried anyway, and they were beaten back. What a lesson. 
Beloved, we are not going to go into the heavenly Canaan until God says it's time. It wasn't time for them to go then. They had rejected Him. You know, this world's getting so bad. People wonder how long are we going to, we're going to be here. We're going to be here, friends, until the Lord says it's time to go home. Until we have faith. When will the Lord say that? That it's time. He'll say it when His people have a spirit like Caleb. What was Caleb's spirit? Numbers 14. We know verse 22. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. You know, it came a, came a time here when the Lord said, everybody of what age? Do you remember? 20 and up? 21 and up? It's 21 and up. A generation. Everybody from that on up is not going in the promised land. That whole generation died in the wilderness except for two people. And this is where God said it. Verse 24, But my servant Caleb... But whose servant? God's servant. Right? My servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully. That spirit was the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? Followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Caleb had a spirit of faith in God. The Lord said he would go into the land. That's Caleb. He'll go into the land. And of that generation, again, there were only two people. Caleb was one of them. Of course, we know the other one, don't we? Joshua. Why were they allowed to go into the land? Followed me fully. Yeah. They had faith. They believed him. They had faith. They brought back a good report. And they said, we're able to go in and possess the land. And they still stayed with the Lord, even though the rest of the children of Israel rejected it. It's interesting. Numbers 14, verses 6 to 8. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of... Um, Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. That means there were pastures there with plenty of cattle. Was flowing with milk. There's also, if you if you take a look at that in the language, in the Hebrew, um, it talks about plant life as well. And certain uh, flowers, white flowers, and, and such. And so it was a picture of like milk, <laughs> you know. And the blessings were flowing because of the flowers. There are a lot of bees, you know, flowing with milk and honey. Do. You know, do a search on that expression that you find here in in uh, the Bible. It's a pretty interesting read. But we find out that it, this land was a good land. It was plush and green, filled with incredible bounties of agriculture. And like I said, they brought back proof of it. One cluster of grapes. I can't imagine. It took two guys to carry. I can't imagine that. Can you the promised land was a good land and friends our promised land heaven is an exceedingly good place and as you study your Bible you will see that the land to which we're going is an exceedingly good land Revelation 21 verse 4 says and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away 
I've never yet found a person who has not enjoyed hearing that text. We're living in a world where there are all kinds of pain, all kinds of sickness, all kinds of trouble and weakness. But the Bible says there's coming a time when there will be no more pain. The Bible also says there shall be no more death. You know, that means you're never going to go to a funeral again, ever. There's no funeral parlors, no undertakers, no mortuaries, no cemeteries, no hospitals, because they don't they're not needed. It's a good place. Not just because of the negative things that will not be there, but the Bible says the redeemed of the Lord are going to return to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They will obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing will flee away, Isaiah says. Do you want to go now or do you want to wait another 40 years? If it's all the same to you, I'd like to go now. Caleb and Joshua didn't figure that they were strong enough in their humanity to conquer the people in the land of Canaan. They said, if the Lord delights in us, He will give it to us. Isn't that what they said? It was not the Lord's will for them to have to gain that land by their own force. He had a much better plan in mind, friends. He has a much better plan in mind for us too. And as I've spoken to others and kept my hand on the pulse of the, the Advent movement, it's really interesting the things you learn and things you see. i found that many of God's people are exceedingly concerned about what we're going to do in the future. <laughs> you see, the Bible says that there's coming a time of great tribulation in the world, isn't it? And we know that. We know it very plainly. It says that there's coming a time of trouble such as was not since there was a nation. And that alarms a lot of people. I mean, that's a staggering statement. And there are a lot of people who want to go someplace where nobody will know where they are. So when the new world order or, or the Great Tribulation or, or you know this, this time comes, they don't need to worry about it because nobody will even know where they are. Do you actually believe a place like that exists? You can never go to a place in this world where you're perfectly safe. We have a work to do, friends. And when we dwell on such things like that, we're missing our calling. We're walking in fear if we do that. Exactly. I found and have realized the best place for me to be and for all of us to be is right where God wants us. And it's not hiding in some cave somewhere. Not right now. If you're looking for some cave, for some mountain hideaway, for some place nobody else knows about in order to feel safe and secure, what you need more than a place like that is faith in God and trust in Jesus. Because as Cindy says, you're living by fear. In fact, I'll go so far to say you're a lot safer and better off in prison if Jesus is with you than in some cave or mountain retreat without Him. You know, beloved, you're never going to find a perfectly safe place in this world. Until He says, right? Right. But perfect safety in this world is found only in Jesus. If you don't want to have a nervous breakdown, <laughs> a heart attack, high blood pressure, or something else, because all of these uncertainties, remember the Bible says their heart's failing them for fear. And I find this throughout the movement. It's amazing to me. What you need more than anything else is faith and trust in, in Christ. God's people are going to get through the times of trouble that's coming. Do you believe that? Amen. Isaiah 26, verse 20. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain.
This is when God puts His hand over the faithful. Do we have anything to fear? Are times of trouble coming? Absolutely. The Bible tells us there's coming a time when God Himself is going to punish this world for the lawlessness down here. And it's going to be so bad that the earth shall no more cover her slain. You know it's never been that bad before. That's an incredible picture. My uncle, my uncle Howard, was in the 82nd Airborne during World War II. And he helped to liberate a number of the Nazi death camps. He was on a detail that filled boxcar after boxcar of the dead from these camps. They discovered where the Nazis had taken bulldozers and dug huge mass graves and put thousands of people in these huge holes and buried them. My uncle rarely spoke of it. He's passed away. But he rarely spoke of it because it was so terrible. A time is coming, according to this prophecy, when God is going to come punish the inhabitants of this world. And it's going to be so bad that that so many people are going to die that they'll not be able to bury them. They're going to cover the earth. Reminded me of Psalms 91.7. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. And on the next part, only with thine eyes, because He is going to shield us. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Praise God for that. How are we going to be ready for the time of trouble? The only way to be ready is to be protected by Christ, by His angels. So friends, how is your faith? What kind of spirit do you have? Do you have the different spirit? Do you have the spirit that Caleb had? I want you to also notice before I end what happened to Caleb and Joshua. They had faith and God's professed people hearing their testimony didn't for the most part. The people wanted to stone them. In fact, within a few minutes, they already had the stones in their hands. And they weren't just talking. They were ready to take action. They said, we're going to get rid of Caleb and Joshua because they're going to lead us into battle and we're all going to be killed. So it better, we better kill them first. <laughs> so they decided to stone them. Now, that was just something they did back in their day, right? <laughs> I mean, we would never stone somebody today, would we? <laughs> I mean, think that through for a while. In Matthew 23, it's rather... Remarkable chapter. Most of us, we know it as the woes to the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said something really interesting that we need to take note of. Of course, everything Jesus said we need to take note of. Matthew 23, verse 34 says, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify. And some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah son of Barachiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. I want to tell you, friends, a lot of people are like that today. Fear controls. It's the overriding controller. They're afraid to proclaim the present truth for for this time. They're afraid that if you proclaim the three angels' messages openly, you're going to be killed. So you better not do it. Or it gets watered down, doesn't it? It's very dangerous to be a spokesperson for God, to be 
his professed people because history indicates that you're likely to be killed if you are a spokesperson for God to his professed people. To his professed people! I'm not talking about the world. You're likely to be stoned. Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets. Who is Jesus speaking to? His people. You kill the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen to gather her brood under her wings and ye would not. Oh, Pastor Joe, we're living in a different age. We wouldn't do something like that. We're a little more refined. We're cultured. Talking about the church. I want you to listen. We do the same things today. We just do it differently. We're more conniving. You see, the stoning system's still here, but we don't use literal rocks. We find out the mistakes that somebody's made, and then we use those mistakes to try to destroy them. John 13. Jesus knew it was important that we understand who the Father was. It was important to understand who Jesus was. It was important to see the true character of God. And that true character is love. Perfect love casts out all fear. So Jesus said to him in John 13, verse 34, He said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. That was a different kind of love. Okay? Because He said, As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are My disciples, if you have love one to another. What kind of love? The kind of love Jesus had. Now some think that this means that the Ten Commandments were replaced by a new command. But the command of love was not in itself new. <laughs> was it? It's in instructions given by the Lord through Moses. Leviticus 19. Same thing. The command was new here in that it was a new demonstration. They'd seen it in the life of Christ. And so Christ is telling us as His disciples we're to do as He has done. And by His revelation of the Father's character Jesus had opened to all a new concept of the love of God. The new command enjoined all to preserve the same relationship with one another that Jesus had cultivated with us. I mean the old command said well you're to love your neighbors as yourselves. The new one says you're to love them as Jesus loved them. It's gone a little bit further. You see, because we don't want to put ourselves to death. We'll love our neighbors as ourselves. But Jesus said, I'll die for you. I'll die for my enemy. Will we die for our enemy? Wow. I mean, we profess to be His people, right? People in Numbers 14 profess to be God's people too. They wanted to stone Caleb for bringing a good report, for telling the truth. They wanted to stone him for telling the truth. Is it any different today, really? Paul said in Galatians 4.16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? How do we react to the truth? Are we really God's children? If we're really God's children, won't we demonstrate it by loving each other as Christ has loved us? By protecting each other? By taking care of each other? By having a regard for each other? By watching out for each other? Do we do that? By Do we help each other? Do we help somebody get up when they make a mistake instead of knocking them down further? 
You demonstrate who you are by whether or not you love your brothers and sisters and by what spirit you have. What spirit do you have toward the Caleb's in the church? The people who have faith, who want to go into the kingdom now. How do you react towards them? Are you stoning each other with their mistakes? By their fruits ye shall know them. Isn't that what Jesus said? And we demonstrate whose child we are by our spirit, don't we? We're either a child of God or a child of the darkness. I hope when you read the story of Caleb, you'll think it through and apply it to yourself. Do you have a spirit like Caleb? Do you love your brothers and sisters as well as your enemies? Do you see them as someone Christ died for? That's the real test, isn't it? I'll close out with this, Matthew chapter 5. Talking about enemies. Verse 43, Jesus said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. That's remarkable. To be a child of the Father in heaven, this is what we have to do. But naturally, we cannot do it. We have to have Christ within. He says, For He maketh His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? Everybody loves the people who loves them. (laughs) Right? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And friends, you can't be perfect if you have no faith. For righteousness comes from God only. God cannot take people to heaven that don't have faith. You cannot please Him without faith. There are going to be some who are going to go into the promised land like Caleb. Praise God. I want to be among them. What about you? Do you know that the Lord strengthened Caleb's life after all the rest had died? He not only went in to the promised land, he went into some of those giants and he destroyed them and he took over their land. Just like the Lord promised 40 years before that he'd be able to do. And he was over 80 years old when it happened. Caleb was the kind of person who said, Lord, if if that's where we're going, I'm going with you. (laughs) If you're willing to go with the Lord, the Lord will go with you and take you to the promised land, friends. Just as He did Caleb. It doesn't matter how many people oppose you. It doesn't even matter how many people are trying to stone you. You can have love and victory right now. Exercise faith and obey as Caleb did. I encourage you to go back and rehearse that story and read it. It'll lift your spirits. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this lesson, the lesson of Caleb. We humbly ask for the Holy Spirit to to help us to see, Lord, to see ourselves in the light of your law, to see our need of a Savior each and every moment. For each and every breath we take, we give you thanks. We pray, Lord, for the grace to be poured out upon us that we may stand, that we may love our enemies, that we can put aside any fears that we have and trust in You. You do have our best interest at heart. You have brought us this far. You will not forsake us. Because Jesus died for us, we belong to Him. May we remain in His hand and keep looking up. I pray that You will encourage those Lord, who have little faith, 
but they have some faith. Help them to exercise it and may it grow. To your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen.